1: Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building. And we're also located in the village of Whitefish Bay, in the Equitable Bank Building, right across the street from my favorite store, Winkies. We're now able to service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. If you're looking for any information on Ellen Becker Investment Group, the markets, and, and some additional seminars that we're hosting, please visit our website at allenbecker.com for more details. Well, I'm pretty excited about today's guest. And uh, when I was first approached to host the show... I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit uneasy because I knew the topic was going to be on the new Secure Act of 2020, and I thought, you know what? Instead of just focusing today's full conversation on that, I'm going to sprinkle in some tidbits on estate planning, on retirement planning, on the old laws, the new laws. Um, but this, just hosting this show, is really providing an opportunity to plant myself in my office and research again, what this act is about and how it affects my clients as well as myself personally. So today I'm here to share that I'm I'm really grateful I had this learning opportunity, but to support me, we've got a great guest and maybe some of you have heard Phil Remmers on the show um, for prior dates or maybe met him personally in our, in our office. So um, Phil, I'd like to welcome you to today's show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks. Um, before we get into the topic, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and talk about estate planning and what it means because that's really your expertise and any client that comes into our office, one of the very first topics we address is estate planning and that's because it's really the foundation of everything we do. Um, it establishes account titles, beneficiaries and all that good stuff. So because the SECURE Act might affect your estate plan, I thought we'd talk of a little bit about um, the legislation prior to the SECURE Act. In fact, um, I always start with the difference between a will and a trust. And in general, Phil, what's the main difference between a will and a trust? Well, you know,
0: as we've talked before, I mean, there's different type of trusts as well. There's both revocable trusts and irrevocable trusts. And the way I like to kind of differentiate those is a revocable trust, one that you can revoke, amend, change whenever you want, is really a lot different, Um, and it's actually more like a will than it is like an irrevocable trust. So what a revocable trust does is simply just say how you want your assets to be distributed when something happens to you. Um, The nice thing about it is it doesn't have to go through probate. It doesn't have to go through a court procedure like a will does. So a will, even a properly filed will, even a properly drafted will, will still have to go through probate. It'll still have to go through a court procedure where a revocable trust does not need to do that.
1: And to go through probate, that's a public record. So I'm guessing I could go on a website and really see if a person passed away, who were the beneficiaries, what the estate value was. So there's a lot of personal information out there.
0: The, the, there is. And and that, and that information, you know, can become available. Um, the registers of probate are pretty good at actually keeping that somewhat bottled up. But I think if, you know, if you pushed hard enough, long enough, you'd certainly be entitled to that you know whatever at least is public you know information on those
1: you know when you think about a revocable trust that really creates the foundation where you can design a trust that's appropriate for each individual family and their situation so when I work with clients, oftentimes we talk about creating something called a family trust, and we, you talk about that with my clients as well. What would be a benefit of creating a family trust?
0: Well, a, a family trust is is a secondary trust or a sub trust that's built within a revocable trust, and it, and really what it is, it's an asset protection trust for the surviving spouse. You'll usually only have a family trust. Um, when you have a husband and wife, one of them would pass away rather than having all of the assets of the first spouse to die go to the surviving spouse. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll direct those into the family trust.
1: So what assets can go into the family trust? Is it joint assets or just the decedents?
0: It it could be any of the decedents' assets could be distributed in there. It could be joint assets. Um, You usually have to go through a you have to get those in there a different way through a disclaimer process, but it could be joint assets, but it would only be their half of the joint assets. It would be their half of the marital assets, but it would be all of their like individual assets.
1: So if I recall from <clears> some <throat> of the meetings that you participated with my clients, one of the biggest benefits of creating that family trust is in the event that there's creditor issues, a divorce, or a lawsuit there's a little protective shell around that, and it's how how secure is that protection, or how in depth? What's the word I'm looking for?
0: Well, it should it should be fairly well protected. I mean, what what you're doing is you're looking back to Wisconsin statutes, and the Wisconsin statutes say that if somebody else puts assets into a trust and it's set up appropriately and it has some threshold where distributions have to be made, that the the, the court system and creditors are not going to be able to penetrate that trust.
1: So if we look at my situation, I'm married and if my husband were to pass away and I'd move assets into the family trust, what are some of the reasons I could not actually make withdrawals from that trust?
0: Well, you can make withdrawals from it. Um, you, you are limited to what they call an ascertainable standard. And most of the time, it depends how the trust is written the, and they will be written a lot of different ways. If we have kind of a traditional family, a lot of times those will be written with what we call ascertainable standards, and that would be health education and support and maintenance. If we have a blended family, though, it might not be so flexible. You might have an outside trustee be in charge of it. It, You might be only limited to making distributions from income, where maybe somebody that was wealthy is saying, listen, I'm going to put this money into this family trust for my, my spouse, but he can only take out the income from it. Maybe that income's enough. Maybe that'd be $100,000 or $200,000 a year, and they want the rest to go to their children, and so they would limit what the distributions are.
1: Even though there's those constraints on the reason for distributions, nobody is really monitoring that. That's really on the honor system, or is somebody actually monitoring that?
0: Well, it depends who's the trustee. The trustee is monitoring that, and so if the surviving spouse is the trustee, then they need to monitor themselves. And if they're in breach of of those, those thresholds, then, you know, there could be ramifications either from the law um, from the children or others.
1: Good to know. And beyond the family trust, oftentimes we create conduit trusts for children. And those are again, what we refer to as acid protection trusts. Can you share a little bit on the trust for the children?
0: Well, similar to what we do for the surviving spouse, um, often what we do in these revocable trusts is we also set up sub-trusts or asset protection trusts you know, for the for the children. And so assets would go into there. If they're under a, a certain age or a time period, then someone else, an aunt, an uncle, a corporate trustee may be in charge of that and would make distributions to the kids. If the kids are over the age, let's say they're over the age of 30, they're mature adults, then they might be in control of their own trust, just like the surviving spouse might be in the family trust. So they would have the ability to make distributions to themselves again, usually accordance to that threshold of ascertainable standards, health, education, support, and maintenance. Within that, though, there's certain requirements in order to get the best tax benefits on retirement accounts and IRAs that we have to put certain other language in. And so, usually, with these lifetime asset protection trusts, they'll either be built to be conduit trusts so that they kind of flow into. And so that you can get, get the distributions over a life expectancy or what we'll use is what they call an accumulation-type trust, and again, so that we can get a longer distribution pattern for those. But those are kind of subsets of the normal trust.
1: I'm going to just talk about one other topic when I think of estate planning before we take a break and kind of um, branch into some other conversations. Health care powers of attorney, who should have one, and why are they so important?
0: Everyone should have one. I mean, they're an easy document. You can get those from, you know, your doctor, hospitals. Um, it's on, you know, on the Health and Human Services website for the state of Wisconsin. Obviously, um, you can get them from your uh, the attorneys as well. But really, everyone should have one. I mean, one of the reasons is, you know, a big thing is right, right before the kids go back to school, I always make a big push with my friends and that, hey, let's get your kids into my office, and I'll just, you know, set up, you know, a healthcare power of attorney for them. So, of course, you know, I did it with child number one, but then, you know, it came to child number two, <laughs> and I kind of lost focus a little bit. And, you know, he went off to, you know, University of Wisconsin, and we got a call two days later, and he's getting appendis, appendix out. And so we show up and they're like, yeah, that's great, but we can't talk to you. And so, you know, that's what it was. And, you know, it obviously it all worked out um, and that wasn't, but it was, it just shows the importance of having those in there. Once your kids become um, the age of majority, once they're over the age of 18, you're not going to be able to act for them anymore. So having that healthcare power of attorney, even having a HIPAA form where you're, the parents can get healthcare information. I know my Wife uses it a lot with our kids because um, they're always having acne problems. They need to talk to the dermatologist and they need to talk to the um, the pharmacist and, and all those sorts of things. So it's about convenience in life. It's about making things a little bit easier. Then. well,
1: when you talk about the HIPAA as well, you know, I'll share. I we have a family health insurance plan under my husband's employer, and my daughter's over eighteen now. So I had called to check on a bill or a medical claim, and sure enough, they couldn't even talk to me. And we were the ones who were paying the medical bills and we were the ones who had the insurance and she had to fill out the appropriate paperwork for us to even um, address some of these claim issues. So that was interesting. Now, husband and wife, because they're happily married, does a wife have the ability to automatically know and make health decisions for a husband or uh, do they also need separate health care powers of attorney? They
0: they would definitely want health care powers of attorneys too and maybe even a HIPAA for the same reason that... The the health community just is not able under the law to provide that information to anyone including you know a spouse
1: so you've used the term HIPAA and health power of attorney how are they different
0: well a health power of attorney appoints someone to make health care decisions if you're not able to make those decisions a, a HIPAA form provides that person to get information so you might be fully competent my wife has a HIPAA on me now um, I'm generally fully competent, and I can make my own healthcare decisions. But she, if she wants to be able to access my, you know, healthcare information or needs to talk to the doctor, she can do that without me. Then,
1: all right. And the final conversation: um, financial power of attorney, completely different document, separate document that allows somebody to make financial decisions. When would that come into play?
0: Well, again, it could come into the you know the play. Like the healthcare power of attorney, when someone is not able to make healthcare decisions for themselves, you would want somebody to step in and be able to do that. Now, that may come into play um, with my wife and I. She has my healthcare, she has my healthcare power, uh, my financial power of attorney, so that she can, you know, sign documents at the bank and take care of business right now, even while I'm competent. But she would certainly want it if you know, I had an accident, I was incapacitated, I was in a coma, I I had dementia, I was not able to take care of my own business, she needs to be able to, you know, deal with the social security office, deal with the banks, possibly sell her home, and she's simply not going to be able to do that without a guardianship going to court or a durable power of attorney.
1: Well, I think that clears up a lot of questions that I had with those two documents. We're going to take a, a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to sprinkle in some conversations around the new SECURE Act, as well as some strategies with retirement planning with those that new legislation. With that, let's take a break. Welcome back to Money Sense. My name is Jean Range. I'm a senior wealth advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group today we are blessed to have Phil Remmers um, in the studio with us and um, our first segment really touched on the basic of, basics of estate planning and as I mentioned I'd like to sprinkle in some information about this new SECURE Act and how it impacts possibly your estate plan or how it imp- impacts your retirement planning and um, some of the changes that can come into play with that. The first thing I wanna talk about is the the term for this new law. It's called the SECURE Act. And it really stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Bill of 2019. So I just thought I'd share what the acronym stood for. And it was actually signed uh, on December 20th of 2019 and it became effective on January 1st of 2020. And what's interesting is here in the financial planning world, we did not even know that this was in conversation, so it was a little bit of a surprise to us. So I thought, you know, let's take an opportunity. Um, You might be reading papers or listening to other radio shows where they're talking about the SECURE Act. So one of the uh, most impactful items of this act is the fact that it's eliminated something we refer to as the stretch IRA. And in the past, uh, we designated beneficiaries. Um, and Phil, you really helped us identify the appropriate beneficiary based on each client's estate plan. But um, it gave the beneficiary the ability to take distributions over their life expectancy. So as an example, my father passed away and I inherited an IRA, and my father was in his 80s, but I could take distributions from the beneficiary IRA based on my life expectancy. And a big change was that was eliminated. What is the new um, law on that now?
0: Okay. Well, well, first of all, what we should talk about is that this law was effective on January 1st of 2020, so that's that's when it went into effect. So, importantly... If people died prior to that date, this new law doesn't affect those that, those distribution patterns. So in your example where your dad passed away because that happened a couple of years ago and you're taking out those distributions out over your lifetime, you're going to be able to continue to take those over your lifetime. It does not change what the distribution is. Yeah,
1: and the benefit of that is it allowed me to continue to have that tax-deferred growth on the investments, and I could gradually make those distributions so my taxes weren't impacted um, substantially. So that was one of the great benefits of that.
0: And there's there's no getting around that. I mean, the, the the reason for this bill, this law that was being passed, it was it was totally a revenue enhancement. I mean, the the government is going to, to get a lot more money, and essentially what it does is it just accelerated them getting in tax revenue because more money is going to need to come out of these these IRAs quicker.
1: Well, and it'll be interesting to see whether that revenue is used to pay down our debt to increase spending, so time will tell on that. But you're right; they are going to have a substantial amount of revenue.
0: I, I don't think it's going to balance the budget, but um, <laughs> um, and we'll never know where it goes. I mean, part of it was it was to offset some of these other changes that we'll talk about, you know, later in the show that are actually are a benefit. So this is obviously a a, a large negative on getting rid of the the distributions over a lifetime. But they felt like that was really Um, being beneficial for the very wealthy
1: so if you are the recipient of an IRA starting as of I should say the death after January 1st of 2020 um, how must they take that Um, what's the time period that they have to take the distributions over
0: well what changed was this I mean before most beneficiaries and that's not to say all beneficiaries most beneficiaries were able to take it over their life expectancy okay so if you were a spouse, what the old rule was is that you could roll it over if you inherited it and make it your own IRA and you wouldn't have to start taking it out until you turned 70 and a half. Alternatively, you could have taken it over your life expectancy, over, over your your spouse's life expectancy. And that was the same way for most other individuals, probably all other individuals that would have inherited the money under the, the under the prior law. Um, what the new law is saying is that for many individuals now, and it's certainly not all, and we're going to go over those those exceptions, but for many individuals, it's now a 10-year rule. So, Gene, when you inherited it from your dad a, a number of years ago, you were able to stretch that over, over your life expectancy. The new rule now would be, if that happened again, is that you would only be able to stretch it out over a 10-year period.
1: And when you think of that 10-year period, If I read the law, it does not appear as if I need to take out a tenth each year. In fact, depending on when the person dies, you may really have 11
0: years, right? Must I
1: take equal distributions over those 10 years, or how
0: can I break this up? What the law says is that you must take, it needs to be completely distributed within the 10-year period, and it can be done however you like throughout that 10-year period, so it does put some strategy in. I mean, it takes a lot of strategy out in that we can't just stretch it over a lifetime. But when you did that, you had to take some out every year. Now what we're able to do is you could take all of it out in year one. And that's what a lot of people, you know, do anyway, because they just want, want the money. A lot of people would, you could take it all out on year 10, or you could take it out a little bit or it's kind of stretch it over the 10 years and so there really is going to be some planning involved in this does it make sense to take it out now and be taxed on it um, does it make sense to wait till year 10 and be taxed on it but if you take it all in a lump sum is that going to push you into a higher tax bracket and obviously it makes a big difference um, on how much you're inheriting if you're inheriting you know thirty 000, forty thousand dollars it just may not put you in a different tax bracket if you're inheriting or $800,000, and you take it all in one year, that's certainly going to throw you into a new tax bracket. So it
1: would be really beneficial to work with a tax planner and really kind of look at your income and see how your income is going to be structured over the next 10 years and do some um, planning. When we talk about this 10-year period, we're not talking about a spouse inheriting an IRA because the rule is if you are married... Um, John and Mary Smith, if John were to pass away, Mary could continue this IRA as her IRA. So the 10-year rule that we're talking about does not really apply to a spouse, correct?
0: It, it does not. I mean, there's there's five categories of exceptions to the 10-year rule. And this is where we're talking about individuals. And so those exceptions, this is going to be an exception for the surviving spouse. So the surviving spouse is essentially, you know, under the under the old rule that you know he or she can receive the money that she can he or she can roll it over, make it her own IRA and not have to take it out until the beginning distribution period. Or what they can do is they can stretch it out over their lifetime. And so that that would continue.
1: Before we expand on the other exceptions, if you have a spouse that um, is younger, younger than fifty nine and a half, and they inherit an IRA from their spouse their husband can they c- inherit that as a beneficiary IRA to avoid that 10% early distribution is that law still in
0: effect it, it is still in effect and so what you know what we're referring to here is that usually when you take money out of a an IRA prior to age 59 there's going to be a 10% penalty on that but that only relates to if it's your own IRA if you take it out early that there's going to be that 10% penalty So when a child inherits it, when an aunt, an uncle, whoever inherits it, and they inherit it as a beneficiary, you could take it out however you want, and there would be no penalty on that. Now, it gets a little bit more interesting with a spouse. That same rule would apply to a spouse. As long as that spouse is a beneficiary, there would be no 10% penalty. But if the spouse takes it and rolls it over and makes it their own IRA, so now they are the IRA owner, then they would also be... um, Th- then they would be subject to that 10% penalty as if it were originally their IRA. That's
1: why it's always important when there's a death to seek out an attorney, a financial planner, before any assets are really touched to make certain that you're taking advantage of all the um, benefits for specific laws and legislation. Another exception is a minor child. Can you expand a little bit on that? It's a
0: kind of, the, the exception is kind of like it says. I mean, it says if, if you have a minor child, then that they can still also continue to take the distributions over their life expectancy. But there is an end date to that because it's referring to a minor child. And so as long as they're a minor, they'd be able to take it over their life expectancy. So if they're 10 years old, they can take it out um, until they reach the age of majority um, over probably an 80-year life expectancy because a 10-year-old would maybe have an 80-year life expectancy. But once they hit that age of majority, then the 10-year rule is going to start. Now, what's interesting about this is most people when you say you hit the age of majority they 're going to think that that meaning is age eighteen, but the definition that they used here they they referred to you know, a, a different law and it 's not exactly clear um wh- when they're, when a child hits the age of majority, so it could be age eighteen it could be age twenty one it could be actually as high as age twenty six so long as maybe they're in school and some you know other thresholds that need to be made so um that that's just gonna have to play out and it will play out over the regulations. What makes it interesting though is obviously that makes a big difference. I mean if a ten year old can stretch it out to age six or to age twenty six, that's sixteen years there. And then if they get another ten years, that's twenty six years. I mean that's fairly substantial. If on the other hand we're dealing with a sixteen year old and they're gonna have to stake it over a ten year period starting at age eighteen, we're not really gaining a whole lot. We're getting another year or two.
1: Boy, when I think of an 18-year-old potentially receiving money, and let's say it's a substantial IRA, how do you protect that money for that child?
0: Well, usually what we do is when we're, we're trying to protect assets for the children, and, and a lot of us do this with our minor children or younger children or children that just aren't mature enough, is we set up a trust, like we talked about earlier in the program, where there's this lifetime asset protection trust for the children, and the... Um, the IRA would be distributed into that trust. The issue is is once we start distributing into that new trust, you know, there's other, you know, issues that arise too, because what we've been talking about so far is that there's this um, that the life expectancy always dealt with, you know, that was for individuals, not necessarily for trust. This 10 year rule is for individuals, not necessarily for trust. What we haven't talked about yet is that when we're not dealing with an individual or we're not dealing with a proper trust that that's allowed to be treated like an individual. It's actually a five-year rule, and it needs to come out a lot sooner. So that is the general rule. The general rule is that it's that all IRAs have to be distributed out within five years. So if we were going to an estate or just a general trust, it's going to have to be out there in five years. Um, when we're dealing with um, an individual, when we're de- dealing with certain type of trust, what we always could do is distribute it out over their life expectancy. For the most part, that's been cut back, and now we're down to the 10 year rule.
1: All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to jump back into this when we talk about some additional exceptions to the 10 year mandatory distribution rule. But I'm getting a little indication here that we need to take a break. So, with that, we'll be back shortly. <music> Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Allen Becker Investment Group. Our guest today is Phil Remmers, and we're having a, a great conversation around the new SECURE Act. We've talked a little bit about estate planning, and now we're going to talk a little bit about retirement. And But I want to continue and close out where we ended during our last segment. And before we close out our last segment, we were talking about exceptions to the tenure rule. And the 10-year rule that we're talking about is if you are the beneficiary of an IRA and you're not a spouse, you have to take this IRA over a 10-year period. One of the exceptions was a surviving spouse, which we uh, talked about. A spouse can continue that as his or her own IRA. Uh, a minor child, and we even talked a little bit about how um, the law hasn't really identified who a minor child is. Is it somebody 18 and under, or I should say under the age of 18? Is it somebody under the age of 26 going to school? So that part of the law still is kind of, I think it'll be clearer as we move forward. There are two other exceptions to the ten-year rule, and one is uh, a disabled or chronically ill person. Do you have any thoughts or comments on that?
0: Yeah, this is one of the probably the the biggest advantages to the new law, and what it allows um, to happen is that a disabled or chronically ill person can also use the life expectancy. You know what the law was before when you use that life expectancy is that the money actually had to be distributed out to the beneficiary. New law seems to indicate though, is that that the disabled person, the chronically ill person could distribute it over their life expectancy, but it doesn't necessarily need to be distributed outright to the beneficiary and distrib- distributions outright to um, disabled people can be problematic. Um, A lot of times what we have set up for those individuals is what we call supplemental needs trusts. Those trusts are set up in order to protect the assets from being lost to governmental benefits, from them losing governmental benefits, health care, and and certain other advantages. Um, And when we're required to distribute the assets um, to those individuals, there could be a loss of benefits, or when those distributions have to come out of the IRA, um a lot more rapidly and we rem- we keep those in the trust and they get taxed very heavily because it puts them in a higher tax bracket. This will allow those individuals to leave the money in the in into the trust the supplemental needs trust, draw it out over a long period of time, keep it in the trust so that it's protected, um but then still get the better tax benefits. So,
1: and another exception as I research this topic is uh, a person not more than 10 years younger than the deceased. Expand on that.
0: Yeah, so this one's as great as the one is for disabled individuals, and, and that probably needed to happen. I mean, that's, that's a, an improvement on the law. It makes sense. It is it, good. This one's a little bit unusual. I mean, what this says is that um, if the person, you can still use the life expectancy as long as the person's not more than 10 years younger than you, okay? So if you're giving it to your brother, your sister, your friend— and they're older than you, or if they're only a few years younger than you, this all works. It doesn't work when you're giving it you know to people you know, like your children, presumably who are more than ten years younger than you. So why they made this an exception I don't know. I mean, it could be that they feel like well, because the people are older that the owner was able to take it out over their lifetime, and so we're not losing. There's not that much more of a deferral, but they're basically penalizing children more than they're going to be penalizing um, brothers and sisters, and I, I don't know if I really understand that one, but that's what got passed. That's the law, and so, you know, that's what it is. You know, one other thing that, I, you know, when I was, you know, saying this that we should think about, when we're talking about, you know, the children exception, I one thing that I don't think that we mentioned was that Um, The children exception is for your children. So it is not for your grandchildren or or other minors. And so when we're talking about minor children, we do mean minor children, not minor grandchildren, not minor, you know, other individuals. And so um, you just need to keep that in mind, too. It's not a a minor law. It's a minor children law.
1: So I don't have grandchildren. I'm way too young to have grandchildren. (laughs) Um, If I were to leave my IRA to a grandchild, they would have to take it out Over what?
0: That would be the ten-year rule. The
1: ten rule. Okay, all right. Before we move into our last segment, and again, our last segment, I think we're going to focus more on planning strategies and uh, maybe some concepts for individuals to consider. I want to talk about some other changes to the Secure Act, and this really gets into. Um, retirement planning. One of the uh, biggest changes was they now increase the age of the required minimum distribution. It's no longer 70 and a half. What is it?
0: Well, it, it's 72. It doesn't seem like a big change. I'm not sure why this was really necessary and why it was a big enhancement. But um, what it allows people to do is instead of having to take it out when they be, you know, become 70 and a half, now they gain another year and a half and they don't have to start taking it out until they become 72. But again, keep in mind that the law is effective January 1st um, and so that if you turn 70 and a half before January 1st, you would still be under the old rule and not the new rule.
1: Another enhancement when we're talking age um, is there used to be a limit on when you could make IRA contributions, or I should say the maximum age for making IRA contributions. And is that law gone completely?
0: Um, Yeah, it appears so. Um, I can't exactly remember. I think it was 70 and a half yes. before you couldn't make any distribution. So once you kind of hit that age where you had to start taking them out, you couldn't be putting any more in, at least on the IRAs. I think 401ks had some exceptions. Um, but now what they did is they got rid of that all, you know, completely. So if you are, if you're 72, 75, you're still working, you can still put away, you know, money into an IRA and you could still get um, the deduction for that.
1: And we actually have clients that are still working into their 70s and their 80s, and um, they'll be very excited to continue to make those contributions and uh, deferral. All right, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back we're going to talk about some strategies or concepts that you might put into play in your own financial plan. Um, So grab some paper and pen, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense. My name is Jean Range. I'm a senior wealth advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. And we've been having a conversation with Phil Rummers. We've talked a little bit about uh, the basics of estate planning, some new legislation that came into play on January 1st called the SECURE Act. And now we're going to talk about some strategy and some planning. And um, during the break, Phil and I were talking and we were talking about his mother's situation, and we thought, you know, let's share as an example how this law impacts you personally, and um, maybe some of our listeners can relate to that. So do you want to continue the conversation that we started?
0: Yeah, and not to say it will impact me, it just, it could impact <laughs> me. So I don't want to feel like I'm getting ahead of myself yeah. here, but, but but thinking about, you know, some strategies. I mean, you know, my, my mom, you know, is retired. She's in a lower tax bracket. She does have some you know, IRAs that, you know, from, you know, herself and from, you know, that were left over, you know, from my dad when he passed away and those. And so, you know, does it make sense if I'm in a higher tax bracket, I have two, two sisters, you know, that are in a higher tax bracket, you know, than my mom. Um, it, it, it maybe makes some sense. Instead of my mom taking out the minimum because she doesn't, you know, spend as much as, as she she can receive from that, maybe she should take out more than the minimum every year. Um, and even though that would mean that it gets taxed um, sooner, but it might be taxed at a lower rate, and so that there might be, you know, some savings there by a, a ten or fifteen percent percentage point on the tax rate. So, um, so what she might do is take out an extra you know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year, which doesn't put her into a higher tax bracket, but that keeps it out of my sister's and my tax bracket, which might be in a higher, you know, tax bracket there.
1: Right, because if you were to inherit that IRA, you'd have to take it out over a ten year window. Right. The other benefit I think of your mother making these larger distributions is in the event of her passing there will be a step-up in cost basis. So she takes the money out of the IRA, and let's say she buys Disney stock at $2 a share. If she were to pass away and the Disney um, stock was trading at $10 a share, your cost basis is $10. So if you sold it immediately, there wouldn't be a huge tax issue.
0: Correct. So by her taking it out and investing it, there's not necessarily that, boy, she's going to have to pay tax on that money year after year. If she would put it into a, um, a high-growth stock that did not pay interest and dividends, she could let that grow, grow up. She could let that grow and um, and then not have to pay any tax on that then.
1: You know, what if you disclaim that assets to go down to your children? What would that look like?
0: So so an- another strategy that you could do that and kind of take it in my mom's example so she starts taking it out sooner. Maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. But then she passes away, and it's going to go down to me to inherit. Well, if I take it again, I'm in a, maybe a higher tax bracket, a higher tax bracket than we want. Especially if I have to take it out over over a ten year period, it's going to come in you know pretty rapidly. So again, it depends where your kids are at. But I have four children, blessed with a lot of them, so I have a lot to spread it over. You know what I could do is is disclaim that. And have you know have all a part of that IRA go down to my children if it were set up the right way you know they're kind of between the ages of eighteen twenty three so at least right now they're in lower tax bracket they're students and have some of that money come in there and maybe again you don't want to give too much away to an eighteen year old or nineteen year old but you know again if it were fifty thousand dollars a year spread between you know four Four kids, you know, that's not you know all that much to kids, especially if they can use it for their college and that sort of thing. Maybe that's getting taxed at zero, you know, dollars. Where you know, with me, it might be being taxed at you know 30 percent or more.
1: Well, you know, and another strategy we've actually thought about was doing Roth conversions and um, being able to convert an IRA, a pre tax account, to a Roth, and after tax. So what you do is you take a distribution from an IRA pay the tax, and it can be um, rolled into a Roth IRA. And um, the tenure window still applies to that Roth IRA, right? But now there's no tax.
0: Right. So it's, it's kind of the same strategy as just taking it out. But what you're doing is you, when you take it out, you're putting it into a better a better entity than just putting it in your own name, which unless we do, you have this capital gains and we 're going to get the step up is going to be taxed if we if you 're able to take it out of that, roll it or convert it into a roth. You're gonna that that money's never gonna be taxable again. Yes, you'll have to take it out over ten years, but while you're alive, you know, over that ten-year period, it continues to grow and grow and grow, and they won't have to pay any tax on it. So that's certainly a viable strategy. If you're gonna need to take it out of the IRA, if you're gonna take it out early anyway to get taxed on it, why not put it into a vehicle where it's gonna be protected?
1: Another reason to get connected with a tax planner versus a tax preparer to really structure and not only look at your taxes today, look at it. Next- next year and the following year and really plan out uh, these conversions. Um, Qualified charitable deductions or contributions, I should say, are those still around with the new SECURE Act?
0: They are. There's no change there. And what a qualified charitable deduction is, is where once you were over 70 and a half, you could go ahead and distribute that directly um, to a charity and um, instead of having to claim it on your income tax return, you would not get a, a charitable deduction anymore, but you would also not have to report the income. So you could make a IRA distribution um, directly to um, to the charity. So those are still around. Um, even though the law went up to 72 and 72 to when you have to take out distributions, it's still 70 and a half. Oh, that's
1: interesting.
0: Um, it's still 70 and a half for that rule, so you can still do that. The only catch with that is is that if you do make contributions to IRAs after you turn, um, um, you know, after you turn 70 and a half, um, they will reduce that off of the qualified charitable deduction. So it probably doesn't you know, make as much sense at that point in time.
1: So I want to just expand on one um, item. So if I'm still working, let's say I'm 75 years old and I'm still still here at Ellen Becker Investment Group working, I can continue to make um, IRA contributions. Will I have required minimum distributions at that point or because I'm still working, um, I'm not uh, required to take that minimum amount out?
0: Well, it... It would depend on the plan. If you have an IRA plan, you're going to be required to take it out. If you have a, um, a 401K, depending on how it's written, you may not be required to take it out.
1: It, it just was a thought that came to mind because I have so many clients working um, just because they enjoy working. Now, we've talked about a couple strategies. We've talked about um, changes to uh, the laws. Um, when you look at all the clients that you've touched, uh, what's your comment
0: well, I, I think what people do need to do is they, they they should really look at their estate plan. They need to look at it a couple of ways. If there's an IRAs that are going into a trust, you want to make sure that the trust language um, is correct so that you will be able to get the 10-year rule Um, even though you were able to get the life expectancy before, you might not be able to get that now. So you would want to look at your trust language. You should also look at it too. I mean, is is the new law going to push out money quicker? And if it does push it out quicker, do you want your children to get it quicker? If you had a child with um, some type of disability, if they have a dependency issue, if they have maturity issues or financial concerns, um, will this new law push it out quicker? And is that still okay? So it's probably worth a brief look at both Um, you know, the the language that you have and the plan that you have.
1: Well, we've had a great conversation. If you are listening and you have any questions, definitely approach your advisor to address those questions. Um, As always, we hope we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Be well.